Good afternoon and welcome to Midday Magazine for Monday, May 1st. I'm Shelby Herbert reporting for KFSK. Alaska teachers are one step closer to getting annual retention bonuses for the next three years. The bill, which was introduced by Governor Mike Dunleavy, left the House Education Committee last week. It would give bonuses to full-time teachers at the end of each school year. The size of the bonuses would depend on the district. Teachers in urban districts would get $5,000. Those in rural districts would get $10,000. And teachers in the most remote districts would get $1,500. At an at a House Education Committee last Wednesday, Sitka Independent Representative Rebecca Hemshute proposed an amendment to make the bonuses permanent rather than just for three years. We already have a retirement system that doesn't necessarily ask people to stay longer than five years. By having this incentive for only three years, it's sort of like come in and do your three years and then go. Himshoot also introduced an amendment to extend the bonus bonuses to, to paraprofessionals, but both amendments failed. Committee members voted unanimously to move the bill out of committee, but some worried it could overshadow the need for an increase to the base student allocation, which is the amount of money per school student school districts get from the state. Bethel Representative C.J. McCormick said he spoke to teachers on a recent trip back home. I talked to them about this bill and they straight up told me, like, this is not what we want. They said we want we want good benefits and we want an increase to the BSA. They unequivocally told me that. Committee Chair Representative Jamie Allard said the retention bonuses guaranteed direct support to teachers. I personally believe that this increase is an incentive and a recruitment tool, as stated in the bill, and I support this 100%. The Senate version of the bonus bill remains with the Senate Education Committee, where it's not scheduled for a hearing yet. The session is expected to end in mid-May. Sitka has selected a site for a new marine haul-out, But the proposed timetable for the publicly funded project is not sitting well with some in the industry. They remain concerned about the ongoing loss of boat repair and maintenance business to other communities. Robert Woolsey reports from Sitka. Sitka has over $8 million to spend on a marine haulout. Voters last October overwhelmingly approved withdrawing the money from the city's permanent fund to build a pier and to buy a large travel lift to pluck boats from the water. The only thing slower than a 150-ton travel lift, however, is the process of designing, engineering, permitting, and actually building a place to use it. Juno-based PND Engineering is doing preliminary planning for the project. At a recent meeting of the Gary Paxton Industrial Park Board of Directors, PND representatives rolled out a timetable that aims for a 35% preliminary design by this fall, final design by the summer of 2024, and operations sometime in early 2025. Local shipwright Mike Nurko thought the timeline was excessive. We missed the 23 season completely. Their boats are just flying to Wrangell, they're flying to Huna, the grids swamped. Um, and now we're talking about missing 24, and we're talking about missing the year 25. For all of these boats, that's four harbors chock full of boats. And I want to encourage everybody to somehow pick up the slack 
and make this happen quicker. There hasn't been a commercial haul-out in Sitka since early last year when Halibut Point Marine closed. Nurco said the run to the nearest full-service haul-out in Wrangell was 28 hours for a typical fishing vessel. Huna, which has a haul-out but limited services, he said, was around 16 or 17 hours. Industrial Park board member Chad Gaydon sympathized but stressed the importance of investing time now, which prompted a swift rebuttal from Nurco. completely understand your concern, but everybody in this room has an idea of what right is in their mind, and if we don't take the time to get that right from everybody, then we have regrets about having moved too quickly. And that's my concern, because when we're done, it's permanent, and there's going to be a lot of things that we can't go back and fix. That's right, but that's why we pay these guys. Um, with all their experience to do something quicker than three years away. And so there's got to be a place in the middle. This is not rocket science. I do hear what you're saying. I think that's wise. But I think there's a middle ground. That middle ground was not identified during the meeting. The board did resolve a separate issue, however. The haul-out project won't include a public use ramp to launch smaller boats. The existing 60-foot-wide gravel ramp was constructed by Northline Seafoods several years ago to haul out barges and convert them into floating fish processors. Northline has since moved that part of its operations to Washington State, and the ramp is seeing only occasional use now. PND proposed, as one of three options, building the pier for the travel lift on the side of the ramp, since the same characteristics that made it ideal for hauling out barges also favored hauling out fishing vessels. Plenty of room for adjacent washdown pads and a relatively short run to the area where vessels will be serviced. Retaining the ramp, if possible, was included in the instructions or the charter given to PND engineers but the site is just too attractive to ignore. Park Director Gary White suggested that the ramp, which was free to begin with, could be relocated to another site. Municipal Administrator John Leach agreed and urged the board to focus on the core mission. The ramp, uh, in my mind, although I personally would like to preserve it, that's starting to become an add-on uh, to the project because right now there is no public use ramp. And if we start talking about What can we do to maintain a public use ramp that was not in the scope of what we were doing in the first place? So um, just wanted to draw everybody back to the, we're talking all out right now. Board member Lauren Mitchell was the most reluctant to give up the ramp and prior to the vote asked other members to explain their reasons for parting with it. Chair Scott Wagner said that he saw it as the best central location for the haul out and the ramp could be moved. When it finally came to the vote, Mitchell, after a pause, said, I'll let it go, and joined the others in selecting the ramp as the preferred location for the new haul-out. PND plans five other public meetings on the project. The next will be sometime in May, when engineers present an initial concept design. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. Alaska's sole congressional representative is urging the federal government to do more in the transboundary watersheds of southeast Alaska. The United States and Canada share dozens of watersheds throughout Alaska in the lower 48. Over 100 years ago, the two countries signed an agreement to collaborate and co-manage the watersheds through the Boundary Waters Treaty, which is administered by the International Joint Commission. But while the commission has more than a dozen standing boards to oversee specific watershed issues across the northern United States, it doesn't have one in southeast Alaska.
Earlier this week, Representative Mary Peltola announced her support for the formation of an international watershed board to bring together stakeholders from Southeast Alaska, British Columbia, and the U.S., and Canadian federal governments. It would be a major step towards fulfilling the long-standing requests of tribal and municipal governments throughout Southeast Alaska for a more open and collaborative watershed management process as mineral exploration in B.C. grows along major transboundary rivers. Sage Smiley spoke to Peltola about what prompted her support for a more formal international process. She says it comes down to widespread support from Southeast tribal governments and communities. Well, my understanding is that people in Southeast Alaska have been asking for this for some time. Both the Native community and the non-Native community have been asking for accountability and oversight on the transboundary water issues for over a decade and maybe even longer. And so I just really felt like it was important to voice my unequivocal support for this effort because there is such a widespread support of this throughout Southeast Alaska. There, I haven't run into any Alaskans who are not in support of, ha- of having, you know, having a commission to oversee it. And, and this is something that Congressman Young supported. I don't know how out front he was, but, but Congressman Young did support this. Why is this important in your understanding? What would this do that is not already being done by the mere existence of the IJC, for example? Well, you know, I know that there there are these watershed councils in other states in the country that share borders with Canada. I think there is one in Idaho and, and Montana. I think there there are others. And there isn't really a formal process to have a watershed, like a transboundary watershed council like this. So we need to make sure that there is, I feel confident that there is the political will among residents of Southeast, but we just need to make sure that people within policy positions and elected positions understand that that political will exists. And then seeing that translate to elected and appointed officials, that same kind of political will. Totally. So this isn't the only trans area with transboundary watersheds in Alaska. Why Southeast specifically for this support of an international watershed board? Because there is so much political will in the communities and among fishermen and among stakeholders themselves. This really is a stakeholder-driven process. This this has been a grassroots effort for many years. So I just am responding to folks from Southeast Alaska who have been clamoring for this for quite a while. There's only so much, of course, that members of Congress or anyone, borough governments in Southeast Alaska can do about this, but what's next? So you support this formation. What happens? What else can you do? Can residents of Southeast Alaska do to continue pushing for this process, basically? Well, I think that it's incumbent upon us as Alaskans to communicate that our communities and livelihoods are at risk and we need to make sure that our neighbors are including us in their decisions in Canada. Currently, they are not including us and they are not engaging in a real discussion. There have been, I guess, I I don't even know how to say it, there have been some responses that would 
indicate that they are receptive, but then those taper off and, and go away. Um, and so I just think it's important that we communicate to the State Department, the United States State Department, to help us. They have not been proactive, regardless of which administration we're in. And I'll be communicating my support for this watershed board strongly to our State Department and Canadian federal and provincial counterparts. The Boundary Waters Treaty was signed in 1909, and this process has been accepted as international law for well over a century, but we're not really seeing that translated in Southeast Alaska at the ground level. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sage. That was KSTK's Sage Smiley speaking with Representative Representative Mary Peltola about her support for the formation of an international watershed board to regulate transboundary watersheds in southeast Alaska. KFSK has an open airwaves policy. We encourage the public to express personal opinions, ideas, and creative works. These pieces are available on our website, kfsk.gov, following the scheduled radio broadcast. The following was submitted for broadcast by Dave Berg. On behalf of the Petersburg Arts Council and all of the users of the Wright Auditorium, we'd like to thank the Petersburg Community Foundation for their grant, enabling the addition of a wireless sound mixer to the sound system at the Petersburg Schools Auditorium. The addition of this new sound mixer will enable sound to be controlled wirelessly by an iPad or laptop from the audience or anywhere in the facility instead of only from the booth. This makes adjusting sound on the fly much easier during concerts and plays. It enhances the current Wright Auditorium sound system, making it much more flexible. This grant was made possible by a partnership with the Petersburg City Schools and the Arts Council to make improvements at the facility. As you may know, the foundation helps nonprofit organization enhance our community by addressing immediate needs and working towards long-term improvements through yearly grants. These funds come from individual donations to the Petersburg Community Foundation, which builds the permanent endowment. As the fund continues to grow via donations from the community members, the fund and grants will have the potential to impact a broader range of residents and show collaboration with other organizations. The Petersburg Arts Council is excited to use the new equipment at future concerts and is thankful to the Petersburg Community Foundation for making it all possible. KFSK encourages public expression of personal opinions, ideas, and creative works. You may see our open airwaves policy on our website, kfsk.org. For more information, please call General Manager Tom Abbott at 772-3808. Thank you for joining me for Midday Magazine. I'm Shelby Herbert reporting for KFSK. Coming up next, local and marine weather forecasts, followed by community announcements.